she is walking there with this young teacher, and the young teacher makes a bid to say, um, won't, you, won't you receive my affection? Won't you receive my friendship? And she simply says, no, I don't love you. I can't love you. Here, would you like some snuff? <laughs> Welcome, welcome back, everybody, to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen, and at this point in the podcast, usually Jackson would jump in and say, I'm Jackson Nikolai, and he'd have some clever, funny thing to say for us. But today, we are discussing a script without Jackson. As many of you who've been following us from the beginning or have jumped on somewhere in the middle, you know that we have, every season, we have a special guest who joins us for a conversation about a script. And I'm very excited excited this season to welcome Dr. Patricia Relf, the arts learning specialist from Walton Arts Center here in Arkansas, to talk with me today. Welcome. Well, hi, Jacob. Nice to see you and to hear yes. you. Yes. Yes. Nice to see you and hear you. It's great to have uh, a conversation with you. Dr. Pat and I worked together for several years. As you just heard me say, uh, I refer to her as Dr. Pat, as many of the folks that work at Walton Arts Center do, and many of the people in the community know Dr. Pat as well. It's great to have her on the show today. We're talking today about a great, great play by a famous playwright, and we're going to tell you about it just in a minute. But the first thing I want to do is I'd love, Dr. Pat, if you'd tell us a little bit about who you are and your love and history in the theater and, and what you do now. Just give us a little intro to yourself. Sure. Thank you, Jacob. I am uh, just a working artist in the theater. I'm so lucky to be an ordinary kid that grew up in a working class family. And both of my parents really loved literature and drama. And they never discouraged me from wanting to be in drama and wanting to study drama, wanting to go into drama as a profession. And so I was able to do that. And I've always been attracted to the great plays, the plays of William Shakespeare and the world-class great plays. This play that we're going to talk about today is a perfect example of that. These are plays that live across time. I like to read them understand them critically, study the history of how, when they were written, how they were produced, other artists who have done them. I love to produce them, to act them live on stage, to talk about it with the audience afterwards. And I have performed some of Anton Chekhov's plays. I have produced some of them. I have assistant directed some of them. And the one we're going to talk about today, I have read and loved this script many times. I've seen it live on stage in great productions, and I've seen it on film, so I can't wait to talk about it with you, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. We're so excited to have you on the show. Uh, you're one of the great artists in this community, and uh, I've worked with you for several years, and, and I've known you for a while, and I'm, I'm excited to be able to have a conversation about any script with you, and I'm especially excited to have you on the show today. As Dr. Pat told us at the beginning of this, uh, as she was giving her um, her background there, we are doing a script by Anton Chekhov. Today we're discussing Chekhov's script, The Seagull, which is just a delightful script, and it'll be fun to talk about in our conversation exactly what kind of script it is. Um, it's very funny in places. 
places and quite tragic in others. And and we'll see how that how that has landed on each of us. This is our first checkoff play on No Script here in season four, which we're probably remiss to have missed him so far. And I'm glad we finally come around to Mr. Chekhov. We have done a play by Christopher Durang called Va- uh, Vanya, Sonia, Masha, and Spike, which is, of course, uh, it's not quite a spoof of Chekhov, but it's a great dry comedy inspired by and alluding to Chekhov on nearly every page. So I feel like we've had we've lived in the world of theater that Chekhov created before, but this is our first time coming to actually one of his scripts, and, and that's very exciting because, of course, they're some of the great works in dramatic literature history. And so before we get to the script, I would like to invite all of you to head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Again, the URL for that is patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's where you can become a supporter of the show. Uh, We love to make this podcast. We're nearing the end of our fourth season. I hope you know how much we love to do it. It's just not free to produce. There are production costs that we ask our audiences to help us support. At that URL, patreon.com slash no script podcast. You can become a supporter, and what that will look like is you'll agree to a monthly amount that you can donate to the show. The the tiers start as low as $1 a month. Even that $1 a month level gets you access to the Patreon-only posts we have over there, and it's really very, very helpful to us. A huge thank you to all of you who are over there already and are supporters of the show. We you're, you're making the continuation of this podcast possible. For those of you who haven't yet, I'd really love to invite you to head over there and support the show. And the the fact that we get to do these special guest episodes is one of the reasons why Jackson and I love to do this the the podcast so much. And I hope for you all, it's a great reason why you would consider supporting No Script, that we like to bring in uh, different voices to talk about the scripts, different perspectives, different ideas. And so again, I, I hope you'll head over there. And I'm very excited now to head back to the script. Briefly before I do, I want everybody to know that we're nearing the end of season four. There are only a few more episodes left in this season. After that, we'll take a short break as we usually do. And we'll be back with you with season five, probably in the late summer. So be aware that we are going to take just a short break here as we finish up these last few episodes of season four. And now, as I usually say, now back to the script. Before we get started with our conversation, we'll give you just a brief overview of the background of the script and just a a brief synopsis of it. Anton Chekhov, born 1860, died 1904. One of the great writers, besides being a playwright, he's well known for his short stories, which are just delightful. If you ever have a chance to read, especially a very good translation of one, they're just incredible little stories. Uh, Along with uh, Mr. Ibsen and Mr. Strindberg, Chekhov is known for being one of the early modernist playwrights. Interestingly, alongside of being a writer, he was also a practicing doctor. And that's especially interesting for the Siegel because Chekhov was a doctor and a writer and a playwright. And the characters in this show are doctors and writers and playwrights. You could almost imagine that much of the show is conversations in Chekhov's own subconscious between the different parts of his own brain. The Siegel was first written in 19 or 1895, first produced 1896. And the sort of the mythos of the story of the 
the of the script is that its first production was an absolute flop. Uh, the the story goes that the first production opening night was so bad that Chekhov couldn't even watch and hid backstage during much of the performance because he just couldn't bear it. And so later when it went on to be such a good success and people were writing Chekhov saying how great the play was and how well it's doing, Chekhov honestly didn't even believe them at first. He had to actually go out and see for himself that it was doing well. This was one of his early forays into playwriting and and it went so badly right away that he decided he wasn't ever going to write plays again, in fact. So, when another big name in the world of theater history, uh, Stanislavski, when he directed a production of it in 1898 at the newly emerging Moscow Art Theater, and it was a smashing success, that, the story goes, sort of reinvigorated Chekhov's belief in his own ability to write plays. Of course, he didn't write that many more. He died less than 10 years later. Um, that production of that Stanislavski directed in 1898, and uh, Mr. Chekhov died died in 1904, so it was only six years later. Uh, You sort of wonder how many more great plays would have come out of Chekhov's incredible brain had he lived a little bit longer. Um, Stanislavski uh, directed it at the, like I said, early Moscow Art Theater. He also played Dragorin in the show. And um, he, Stanislavski is well known for his special focus on characters' subtext and on sort of the minutia of their acting. And so he creates something like a score for the Seagull of all the minute actions that his cast were doing throughout the production. And Chekhov was so inspired by that production that he actually wanted the scoring of the actions that Stanislavski created with his troupe to be uh, published alongside the script. He thought it provided some insight into the script that would help other productions. Uh, going on into the, you know, what, what would it be, about 130 years late, uh, later, we're talking about it now. It was, in, it was on Broadway in 1938 and several times since then. Notably in 1992, Ethan Hawke was in a production on Broadway playing Constantine. John Voight played Dragorin. It's, of course, toured the world in translation after translation. Listen to this description of a production from the NYC Shakespeare Festival in 2001. The director was Mike Nichols, an incredible stage director. He's done a couple of films as well. And then here's the cast. This is just a normal play in New York City, the New York City Shakespeare Festival. Listen to this cast in 2001. Meryl Streep plays Irina. Christopher Walken as Soren. Philip Seymour Hoffman as Constantine. John Goodman as the steward. Kevin Kline playing Trigorin. Steven Spinella playing Medvedenko. And Natalie Portman as Nina. That's one of the most star-studded stage play casts I've ever heard of. I mean, that is a series of the powerhouse actors of still today, 20 years later, doing an incredible play in what I'm sure had to have been an incredible production. 2007, it was over at the Royal Court Theater. Kristen Scott Thomas was Irina. She actually won an Olivier Award for that and later revived that role in a Broadway production. Uh, 2007, 2008 at the Royal Shakespeare Company and then also on the West End, Ian McKellen was in rotation for the role as Soren. Um, He and another actor sort of back and forth the role because Ian McKellen was also in that famous production of King Lear at the time. Can you imagine being Ian McKellen and playing Soren in The Seagull and King Lear in King Lear at the same time. What an incredible thing to have happened in your life. 
uh, and to look back on. In 2008, Diane West and Alan Cumming were in productions in New York. There have been several more regional and famous productions since then. Of course, as much of Chekhov's work have, it's, it's been adapted to film several times. In 68 and 70, it was produced in Russian. There's a 2014 film called Days and Nights, uh, where Allison Janney, Kitty Holmes, and Mark Rylance were all in it. And apparently it's terrible. It's an adaption of The Seagull that got really, really bad reviews. Like, uh, for those of you who care at all about Rotten Tomatoes, it got like a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. So very bad. In contrast, 2018, a film production of The Seagull came out that stars Annette Benning, Saoirse Ronan, Corey Stoll, Elizabeth Moss, and so on and so on. There's several more big names in there, directed by Michael Mayer, who's a Tony Award-winning director. Director. I watched that film in preparation for this podcast, and I got to tell you, it was incredible. It was very good, very, very faithful to the script and the story, and, and really blew me away as a film adaption. So if you don't have the opportunity to watch a stage production, of which there are several film stage productions online, or there may be one playing near you, not, not right now in our world probably, but uh, maybe in the next year or two years, if you have the chance, see it on stage. But if you don't, check out the movie, which is it's really, really quite good. That sounds good. That's a good history, Jacob. Um, you've told about the great love of this script in the Western world, and um, you missed some of the famous 1980 performances in Great Britain, Royal Shakespeare there. It's a play that's done a lot in this day, and I do want to just go back to your introduction of the brand new play script, The Seagull, a brand new script. It was originally staged after 12 days of rehearsal, so it is said. So it is a four-act play. There is a boatload of dialogue. The whole uh, dramatic action and thrust of the play comes through the way we understand people and how they talk and what they say to each other. So after only 12 days of rehearsal, you would know that there would still need to be a lot of prompting. And the reason Chekhov could not watch his performance was that the performance simply could not sustain itself without the prompter being heard. And so the actors simply did not know this script well enough so that they had to be prompted often. He said he tore up the script and never wanted it to be produced if he lived 500 years. But thank goodness it was produced again, and Stanislavski rehearsed it 12 weeks instead of 12 days. And by that time, the characters are deeply internalized. The dialogue that is written in a most intimate and natural way is delivered easily, naturally, as if it were just thought of. That's so important in this script. Uh, and words that just slip out. You don't mean to say them, but they just come out in an exclamation or through your tears. You're trying to keep control of your emotions. So it's intimately written, very personal for the human condition, and that is what modern um, theater companies and organizations uh, love so much and now are able to do well live in performance 
and in film. And boy, I would have liked to have seen that Mike Nichols production. What a director who understands the human heart. This play is big about the human heart. And what a star-studded cast. Um, that would be great. Yeah, I, you look at a cast like that and any one of those actors could have been the big name on a bill nowadays doing exactly the same play. To have them all together, uh, it just makes you wonder how, how incredible it would have been to be in that audience. Thanks for that especially detailed history about that first production because that does provide the insight of why did it go so badly? The script is so good. You wonder you know, what exactly about that opening performance made it not go so well and to learn about the 12 days of performance or of rehearsal uh leading up to the opening of a brand new script by a fairly new playwright uh the poor Chekhov it sounds like they did not do his script a ton of justice well sometimes uh, that happens in the theater one of the things I love about the seagull is that it pulls the curtain back and lets an audience see the intimate little things that happen in an artist's life, the private stuff, the stuff ordinary people don't really get to see in an artist's life. And, you know, part of the common little rules of the game is that when you do a great big new work, you really have to dig in, you really work hard, you spend time with the other artists in order to make something that's complicated um, and, and requires a lot of skill and technique to do, you want to make that seem absolutely effortless. And Chekhov's plays are plays that should seem quite natural and quite effortless. Um, and... And so that's something I still love about this script. Absolutely. The play itself is set on a summer, basically what amounts to a summer lake home. Um, it, it was used as a vacation home for the owner, who, who we'll call Soren, for a while. But now in his retirement, he lives there permanently. And members of his family and the surrounding community spend their time over the four acts with him in this lake home. The first three acts take place over about a week, a little more than a week. And the fourth act takes place two years later. Uh, in terms of what actually happens in the play, this is one of the great complications of Mr. Chekhov, because one of the accusations leveled against him that, that of course, wonderful productions prove untrue is that not a lot happens in terms of things happening to the characters and around the characters. The seagull actually has many more actions in terms of being able to write down actions that occur on or off stage than some of his other scripts do, especially than a script like Uncle Vanya. Um, the, the plot of what occurs amidst this group of characters is a series of misguided loves or misplaced loves. That's certainly one of the things that happens. Uh, Constantine, one of the major characters, is the son of Irina. They all have much longer names than this. Uh, we'll, we'll just refer to them as a one-name people for now. Irina, famous actress... Both she and her son are at this summer lake home. Her son Constantine lives there with Soren, and Irina is visiting off of a, an, a tour of some sort for the summer. Irina has brought with her a famous author, Boris Tregoren. 
and she and Boris are in some sort of relationship together. Um, they're not married, but they are, uh, they, at least Irina believes that they're exclusive in some way. Uh, and Constantine is, does not like Boris Dragorin very much, largely because he is also a young writer and sees that Boris is a successful writer who's also sort of a young man. Um, additionally, Constantine is in love with Nina, a young girl that lives at the one of the neighboring estates on the lake. And Nina also wants to be an actress. In fact, the very first act of the play, Nina performs in a play written by Constantine. Nina is in love with Constantine, or at least in a relationship with him of some sort at the beginning of the play. But throughout the first three acts, she falls in love with Tregorin, the author. And so that's one of the reasons why Constantine does doesn't like Trigorin very much. Surrounding this group of artists, uh, Sorin, uh, I'll say quickly, Sorin, the person who owns the estate, is Irina's brother. He is an old man who never uh, got married, and he wanted to be a writer too in his younger days and is not anymore. Um, he's also in poor health. There is a family of uh, people who work, the steward of the farm that is part of the estate, and his wife, Polina, and their daughter, Masha. Masha is in love with Constantine, again, who's in love with Nina, who's in love with Trigorin, who is supposed to be in love with Irina, but is going to thread the play, fall in love with uh, Nina herself. Medvedenko is a teacher from the surrounding area. He is in love with Masha, who's in love with Constantine, who's in love with Nina, who's in love with Trigorin, who should be in love with Irina, but is actually in love with Nina. Also surrounding this group is a doctor. Uh, he's gone by Dorn in the script. Many of the characters just call him Doc, uh, at least in my translation. And uh, Dr. Dorn is uh, sort of known to be a ladies' man. He's had many relationships. He seems to be, or at least the accusation is leveled against him, that he's in love with Irina, who's in love with Trigorin, who's in love with Nina. But uh, one of the complicating problems of that part is that uh, Polina, again, the wife of the steward, she is in love with Dr. Dorn, who's in love with Irina, who's in love with Trigorin, who's in love with Nina. There's several other characters who are uh, servants. I think I've hit the major characters. Because of all this craziness of uh, loving the wrong people, many of the characters in this script are unhappy with their lives, both because of the misplaced loves, but also because of other things, things in their lives that are unfulfilled. I'm sure we'll talk about some of the characters and what's gone wrong in their lives. Some of the major actions that occur are that because Constantine's play is mocked, basically, during while it's being performed by his family, especially his mother, who he so wants wants to impress. Um, he gets upset about that, and then he, in his upsetness, he sort of storms off, and Nina has a conversation with Trigorin, which causes Constantine to become very jealous, and Nina and Trigorin's relationship grows. Constantine grows more jealous. Eventually, he brings her a seagull, Nina. Constantine brings Nina a seagull that he shot and says that he's going to shoot himself, just like he shot this seagull. 
And then between Acts 2 and 3, he does attempt suicide by shooting himself. It is a failed attempt. Um, and so Act 3, he is bandaged up and everybody is, uh, the folks that are there on summer vacation, uh, which is Irina and uh, Trigorin, they are going to leave um, because uh, they were going to leave before because Irina was upset about um, many things, uh, one of them being that she doesn't feel respected by the steward. Um, but they were going to leave anyway. They decided to stay, but then Constantine's failed suicide attempt uh, causes them to go, both because he's upset at his mother and because he's upset at Trigorin. Uh They do decide to leave, and that is then the two-year gap into Act 4, um, which is that that group returns, Irina and Trigorin return to the summer home because Soren, again, Irina's brother, is uh, finally in, in his last part of his life. He, he's in ill enough health that they've called the family to come around him. We've learned in that two-year gap that Nina indeed has gone on to be an actress. She has had a relationship with Trigorin and actually had a child that died by him. But Trigorin has come back to Irina and their relationship is resumed. Uh, Nina's acting has gone very badly and now she's quite poor, but she still gets some gigs, but um, certainly not that are paying her a ton. Uh, in that two-year gap, Constantine has become a writer of some note. He's selling magazine stories quite regularly. Um, we don't learn a ton about what's happened to many of the other characters in the intervening time, except that Masha did marry the teacher. Remember, Masha was in love with Constantine, who did not return her love. She did marry the teacher, but she stayed working at the home, and so she stayed around Constantine, and the love that she thought she would, the quote is something like, tear out of her heart by marrying the teacher, has not been torn out of her heart. She and the teacher are hoping to move to a neighboring district so that they will get away from Constantine. Um, the family returns, they play some games, they all go out of the room leaving Constantine alone, where Nina shows up, they exchange some words about kind of how badly both of their lives have gone in some ways and what they had hoped would happen versus what has happened. Um, and Nina leaves and in that final moment of the play, Constantine uh, does successfully commit suicide off stage. Um, and the final line of the play is the doctor saying we need to get Irina, Constantine's mother, out of the home because Constantine has indeed shot himself. And that is how the play ends. That was sort of a fumbling attempt through some of the actions of the play because there's so much going on. There are so many characters and so many things happening between the characters that it becomes hard to put them all into some synthesizable, easy-to-say package. And yet you did a very good job of that, Dr. Phil, especially, <laughs> especially the part of who loves whom. But I want to open up the envelope of the audience's imagination right now. And I want the audience to picture the most beautiful natural setting on a lakeshore that you can imagine. Glorious green, fragrant trees, beautiful water, birds of every kind making the lake area a habitat and an estate that all of this, these uh, misguided love affairs and these terrible and beautiful dramatic actions take place on. A very nice estate is built there and a beautiful stage is built out by the water. And our play gets to start 
in this place of great luxury. And there's a neighborhood there. Nina and her family are a very well-to-do family. They live across the lake, some distance away. But these are well-to-do families that may have lived in this absolutely glorious location for many years, for many generations. And at the time of our that Chekhov wrote this play, and at the time that many people set the play in, the arrival and exit from the estate is still done either by horseback, horse and carriage, or by someone walking. And so, audience, I want you to imagine living in, in an almost Eden-like setting, a place of great perfumed perfection, and that the people who live there have the reality of a kind of solitude. That is, the nearest neighbors live quite far away, and the people that you see day in and day out are always going to be members of your family or people that work on your estate. And <laughs> Soren and the, and his actress sister, they don't really have to work on this estate. Somebody else does the labor of harvesting the crops, the barley, the wheat, or the orchard, or the vineyard. Other laborers are going to take care of that. And your life is a life of ease, luxury, where you have time to think about reading the most exciting uh, new novel of the day, or a magazine, or doing a brand new play on this stage. And that's how our story starts out, where on this day, Constantine, the young playwright, is having his brand new play produced. And there's great excitement everywhere in the household that everybody's going to get to come down to the lake and see this new play performed. That's a good way to open a play, wouldn't you say, Jacob? I would. It, it makes you wonder, you know, how much happiness are we going to witness on this stage, this beautiful place, this these work of, th of theater that's being produced, these fabulous people. And yet, into this beautiful setting, enter the first two characters we see, um, Yaakov and the workman, actually, they're working on the stage. Those are the first characters we see. The first spoken lines are Masha and Medvedenko. Uh, I'm sorry, Medvedenko. Uh, this is Masha, who's in love with Constantine, and Medvedenko, who's in love with Masha, the school teacher, uh, Medvedenko comes on stage with Masha. He says, why do you always wear black? And she says, I am in mourning for my life. I am unhappy. We get this glorious Eden, as you so beautifully described, and this life of ease. Now, Masha and Medvedenko, they have to work. They're not that uh, bourgeoisie that get to let other people do the labors for them, as some of the characters are. But into this beautiful location comes a character whose first line is, I'm in mourning for my life. I'm unhappy. Yes, exactly. And it is not that their jobs are bad. One is an educator. That's what I do. I love to do that kind of thing. But he doesn't really have anything good to say about a noble profession. And Masha herself... Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want to bring in a quick quote to that. In fact, in, at one point in the play, he in, invites Constantine to write a play about teachers and how bad their lives are. <laughs> she is walking there with this young teacher, and the young teacher makes a bid to say, 
um, won't you won't you receive my affection? Won't you receive my friendship? And she simply says, no, I don't love you. I can't love you. Here, would you like some snuff? <laughs> Try it. Yes, and and the teacher, Medvedenko, is describing Constantine and Nina, who are in a, some sort of a relationship at the beginning of the play, and he describes that their souls are united in the beauty of a singular creative effort that they have together, and then he turns to Masha and he says, but your soul and mine have no common point of contact. <laughs> uh, and, and this is a, a an imaginary parallel between the ethereal world of what the esteemed artist might live in. That is, the school teacher very rightly points out that something is special, something very special, unites the soul of a director and his lead artist. And as they confer, and, and in the background, we hear the director giving stage directions to the technical staff that are getting a lighting and a and a, a smell effect ready on the stage. And other actors that say, I'll be back to the stage shortly. I'm just running down to the lake for a brief swim. And he's saying, be back on time. The, the rehearsal starts at this time. So they're taking care of the business of the theater. And that seems to be elevated in the imagination of the ordinary audience person. That sense of artists do something that is, is uh, spiritual and heavenly because they leave common and ordinary things behind and they assume another state of mind so that in the performance of poetic words and this other state of mind, something transformative can happen in the audience. And the truth is, that's still what we try to do in the theater today. That's true. And it's interesting that that view of what an artist does and this relationship between these people who are in this artistic endeavor together comes from Medvedenko, who's not an artist. He's a school teacher. He may be an artist in some other capacity in his life, but that's not his profession. And from some of the artists in the play, we get... Uh, a different view of how they output their creative energy. I'm thinking of Trigorin's great long monologue to Nina later in the play where he describes his writing as a kind of obsession that he can't get away from. He loves the act of writing, but not the act of his work being published. And he doesn't like how it consumes the rest of his life. He can't go to the theater without thinking of new plots. He can't look at a cloud without thinking about how it has to go into a story. He can't smell a scent without thinking about the kind of character that scent would be associated with. Every, every sense, every moment, every act is the compelling um, task of his profession to sense, perceive, then steal from life what it will take uh, to write a good story. Uh, I for I want to talk about the moment of the play a little bit, Jacob, and then for sure I want to talk about his moment uh, with Nina, where Trigorin, the novelist, takes her life for just a moment and uses it for his writing, and in fact uses up her life, uh, as we see in the drama. The moment uh, in The Seagull where the play is performed to me is a very important one. 
And in most great stage productions, it's beautifully staged, although the script of Constantine, the young playwright, the text of his script is completely different from the one that we're hearing in The Seagull, the one that Chekhov wrote. His script is much more symbolic, passionate, prophetic, image-filled. It's really uh, a series of images linked one after another with kind of immature rhetorical devices, the repetition of certain words uh, again and again. But it is performed beautifully, and, and good directors direct it sincerely, not farcically, uh, on stage with this glorious lake behind and the moonlight shining behind it, and this beautiful, the perfect image of a sincere young actress, eloquently, heartfelt, expressing elemental words of nature, of spiritual enlightenment, and of the sense that all life exists in this great a sphere of beauty, and yet within this fecundity, the richness of all the animals that are here, all life will die. That's the natural thing. And all life ceases so that the moon that's shining on this beautiful play right now, the moon sh seems to shine in vain because all life does come to its natural end. And on that, on that happy moment, the stage effects take place, and then the performance on the very serious tone of life does come to an end, <laughs> the audience members begin to comment. The stage effects occur, and the performance kind of falls apart, and, and the playwright is absolutely crushed. As I would be, I totally understand how he feels. And his mother who ha is used to being the star in great European melodramas and romances of traditional commercial Broadway-style uh, plays in Moscow. She makes um, a tiny, snarky little comments. They're, they're not too horrible, but they crush her son's spirit. And she feels bad enough about it afterwards that she says, please go get him. That uh, uh, What I said, I didn't mean to say that. That was terrible. I must apologize to him. Yes. It, one of the great things about seeing a play within a play, there's so much great history of plays within plays, notably in a, in a play like Hamlet, which is very obviously referenced in this particular script. But one of the great things about a play within a play is that a playwright gets to create a context for a piece of art that is being done. And the, one of the contexts of this script that Constantine is having performed by Nina is this soured somewhat relationship with his mother. Immediately prior to the play being performed, Constantine has said that he thinks his mother doesn't love him, that she in fact hates him. Now, you wonder how earnestly he believes that and how, how much of it is uh, kind of an angst of uh, feeling rejected or if he knows, if he thinks cognitively that she truly hates him. We don't quite know how deeply that feeling goes. And in fact, later in the script, they seem quite friendly until they aren't. But that's what he feels about his mother. He also feels that the art that she's doing, as you said, these sort of commercial, melodramatic, romantic pieces is 
empty and false. He talks very routinely and amidst several of the translations that I've looked at from Russian, almost every English translation uses this phrase, new forms. He wants new forms in the theater and the new form that he creates is sort of an early version of Russian symbolism in in his script. And uh, Irina See, you know, at one point she says this is sort of uh, uh, self-aggrandizing. This is just sort of proselytizing. There's, and even uh, Nina says there's no living characters in this. And so many of the characters have questions about the work that Constantine is doing. And yet the doctor says to Constantine, you know, I liked that play. I'm not sure what was so good about their, that play, but there was something special to it. And then in Act 4, at the end of the play, Nina herself references that moment in time, two years ago, that moment on that stage in that moonlit night when we did your play. And then she speaks it. She speaks the very words of the play. Now that's remembering the text a long time afterwards. And it tells us that that Constantine's play meant something deeply to her and that when she performed it, she performed it with great sincerity and she kept his words in her heart and in her memory all of that time. Even though she's been through and is currently in uh, great trauma. But like like Chekhov, Constantine, he has Chekhov's exact same response. He tells her, uh, my play was a flop. I hated that play. I burned that play. No one's ever going to do it again. And yet it still exists because two people we know, the doctor said something special. He's going to remember that because he. the doctor quotes other plays and other operas. So little words stick in the doctor's memory. And then, of course, it lives in text in Nina's uh, memory so you can't really destroy some plays. We also learn an additional bit of context about that performance from Act 1 in Act 4, and we learn it sort of indirectly. By this point in the play in Act 4, Constantine is now a writer with several stories published in magazines, and Irina, his mother, heartbreakingly says that she's not read a single word that he's written. And you sort of wonder if you went back to that point in Act 1 and you could tell Constantine the future and tell him that you're going to become a writer and your mother's not even going to read any of your work. You wonder how much of that initial artistic endeavor in Act 1, how much of that emotional energy that he packed into how is my mother going to respond, would he have been able to look to other people for their response because he knows that maybe his mother's never going to give him what he hopes from her in terms of artistic equivalency. That does happen with uh, mothers and sons, but I, I want to say that in The Seagull, I do feel that that's a moment of that secret drawing back of the curtain where Chekhov brutally and truthfully tells the secrets that he understands from the inner lives of artists. And one of the um, terrible truths is that artists are extremely vain individuals and their uh, emotional attachment is an emotional attachment to themselves. And they're extremely envious and jealous of other people, including the people that they love. I know this for a fact. 
And it's a thing that great artists have to watch, that vanity and jealousy. You really have to watch that in your ego if you want to become a truly great artist and speak compassionately for all human beings when you share your art form. Um, it's not only that jealousy, but the way that the famous actress, so elegant, so composed, so lauded by everyone, how when she feels that her beloved Trigorin, the writer that she keeps on a tight leash so that he belongs to her and to her alone, when she feels in the least that a younger actress might be attracting him, she absolutely begs for his love. And it is a beautiful scene when this elegant and beautiful lady, uh, in, in metaphorically on her knees, begs for the love of the man that she usually commands. Uh, these are some of the dirty little secrets that Chekhov unfolds. Um, our time to talk about this play is moving on, but I want to ask your permission, Jacob, if I could take Please. us to one of the um, dramatic moments. It's a moment that I love to read in the play over and over again, and, and it's a one that's famously performed. It's where the young artist Constantine and, um, and the young actress Nina speak to each other where he brings the seagull into her. He has been hunting with a gun, and Chekhov tells us that he enters the scene um, with a seagull in hand, and he has been hunting without his hat. He sees this beautiful uh, woman, that young woman that he loves, and he says, you're alone. She says, yes, I'm alone. He lays the seagull at her feet. Now, this is a chivalry, uh, an act of chivalry to lay something of honor at the feet of your lady. And she says, what does that signify? I had the dishonor to kill the seagull today. I'm laying it at your feet. What's the matter with you? She picks up the seagull and looks at it. Soon I shall kill myself in the same way. You are not the person I used to know. No, I'm not. Not since you stopped being the person I used to know. You've changed toward me. You look at me coldly. You're embarrassed by me, my being here. You've got so irritable recently. You put things obliquely all the time in some kind of symbols. This seagull, too. This is obviously a symbol of something. But I'm sorry. I don't know what it means. She lays the seagull away on a bench. I'm too simple to understand you. And he says, it all started that evening when my play was such an idiotic failure. Women never forgive failure. I burnt it, every last torn up shred of it. I knew, if you knew how unhappy I am, it's terrifying the way you've grown cold toward me. It's unbelievable. It's as if I'd woken up and found that this lake had dried up or drained away into the earth. You just said you were too simple to understand me. Oh, what is there to understand? The play wasn't like you despised my inspiration. You've begun to think of me as an ordinary person, a non-entity, someone like everyone else. 
I know just what you mean, just exactly what you mean. It's like having a nail in my brain, curse it. I curse this pride of mine too that sucks my blood, sucks it like a serpent. And in come Tregoran, the writer that Nina loves. Oh, here comes the man with the real talent, entering like Hamlet, even down to the book. Tregoran is reading a book. Words, words, words. The sun hasn't reached you yet, and already you're smiling. Your expression has melted its rays. I won't stand in your way, and he runs off. Nina attracts Tregoran, and she beckons him down, and he, he's leaving his conversation with her. And she's speaking about how she longs to have uh, the life with, the life as he has. And just before he's called back into the house, he sees this dead seagull and he says to Nina, what's that? She says, a seagull. Constantine shot it. Beautiful bird. I really don't feel like leaving the lake. Why don't you try to persuade her to stay? And then he writes in his book. What are you writing? Oh, nothing. Just jotting something down, an idea came into my head. He hides the book. An idea for a short story. A girl like you, living beside a lake since she was a child. She loves the lake the way a seagull might. She's as happy and as free as a seagull. But one day, by chance, a man comes along and sees her. And quite idly, he destroys her, like this seagull. We know, of course, that this is one of the crucial, important, memorable scenes of the play, not just by virtue of the play being titled The Seagull, but also because of the impact that these two moments, these two moments that happen one right after another, have on Nina's life to the very last moment that we see her on stage. We learn that even later in even later in this timeline, before the two-year breakup, before Act Four, she calls herself a seagull a number of times, even before then. But then we've learned that in that two-year gap, she's been writing Constantine letters signed the seagull. And when she finally appears in Constantine's steady, covered in rain and almost talking nonsense in some points, hard to keep her mind straight, she calls herself the seagull. I'm a seagull. No, I'm an actress. No, I'm a seagull. And she quotes this line from Tregoran. In my translation, it says, a man comes along by chance, sees her, and having nothing better to do, destroys her, just like this seagull here. She remembers that line to the last moment that we see her on stage. And I prefer that translation and having nothing better to do destroys her. That sense of careless, casual impact that we have on other people's lives. It's not as if the male figure harmed her, although he did not um, uplift her and compassionately help her as he could have. But it is that it points to that risk of uh, emotional attachment that all human beings acquire and the sense of our longing and self-imposed need and addiction to must be involved with this or that beloved other person that 
in everybody's life sometimes does not help us. And um, we are allowed to see in this drama how destructive um, the, un, the attachment, the addictive attachment to another human being uh, is. And of course, in the, the, the imagined short story that Tregorin is writing, Constantine is the man, having shot the seagull, and the accusation is having nothing better to do. Constantine has in some way done the same thing to Nina. But Tregorin, at the end of this story, he's the one who seduces Nina into a relationship with him, who has a child by her, the child dies, and he simply abandons her. Uh, and th this, is, um, uh, this is the way of life. And he is, um, we see that, I mean, most audiences do see that as a terrible flaw in his character, that sense of, um, of idly... Um, probably loving both the young actress and the older actress at the same time. That's the implication that it draws in the audience's mind. And when the young actress does not have the prestige, the success, the uh, elegant lifestyle uh, as the established actor does, but instead has neediness and uh, the crying child and uh, a need for help, support, and nurturing that writers often need for themselves, then in a most uncompassionate way, uh, he leaves her on her own. And she says in that scene of Act Four, I was afraid for our child. So it means that Trigorin is guilty of, uh, in, in our social world, a very serious crime of loving someone, of fathering a child, but not caring for the family of that child, that, that that child is a part of in any way, shape, or form. But we see, in fact, how um, Irina uh, also, she, she lets her son live on her brother's estate, but the son himself says, when I ask mother for money, she's such a miser. She never gives me any money. I'd like to try this or try that, but I don't have uh, the funding or the support from my parent uh, to be able to do that. So the play talks very much about the need for mentoring in the world of the arts, just in the same way that there is need for compassionate, loving parenting and mentoring within the family. And I like very much how the family and the family of artists are in very tight companionship within this play because that is a truth in this world of art and culture. And of course, Nina's relationship with this family is one of the early sort of back and forths of the script. She is not allowed to come over to this estate of where this family lives by her parents because they're, you know, they're artists. They're sort of too bohemian, but she very much wants to be there. So whenever her parents are away, she sneaks off to participate in a family life that feels different to her, that feels more aligned with what she wants. And then at the end of the play, we learn that by deciding to go to the stage, she's lost that access to her own family. Uh, her, her parents have kicked her, off, kicked her out, disinherited her, and in fact set guards so that she is not allowed back to where her family used to live on the lake 
anymore. Yes, that's very heartbreaking. And uh, the sense of uh, family not being there uh, for you is strongly expressed in this play, both in the artist family and in Nina's family, that her father and stepmother disown her and set the guards against her, that she does not have a family uh, that she can return home to. And then even in the, the Masha story, she marries a school teacher, but chooses to stay on the estate where her beloved Constantine is moping about and, and mooning about. And at the start of Act Four, her own husband says, um, Masha, please come home with me. Uh, your child, our child together, needs you. Our child has missed you these last three days. And she says, oh, the nurse will take care of him. By this time, um, in most dramas, uh, her character is portrayed as a woman who is significantly addicted to alcohol. And so she stays at her the place of her father's employment where he is the caregiver on this beautiful estate on this side of the lake and she is not interested in going over to her home where her husband is always um, trying to hide the bottle from her and where she has that crying child that she has to take care of. So she herself cannot care for her, her own beloved spouse nor her child. These are natural relationships that our own inflated ego keeps us from uh, having a loving and compassionate relationship with. No wonder everything goes wrong in this play. That's right. It doesn't seem like there are very many uh, healthy examples of a relationship through the whole thing. Irina and Soren as brother and sister are uh, probably remarkably healthy uh, given the rest of the relationships in the play. It seems like they're all broken in one way or another. And we've said words like, uh, 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 you said uh, blatant, and I said heartbreaking and tragic and hard and, and painful. And yet, uh, Dr. Pat, I'd, I'd like to read you a quote that Chekhov gave about this play. He says, I am writing a play which I shall probably not finish before the end of November. I am writing it not without pleasure, though I swear fearfully at the conventions of the stage. It's a comedy. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I, there are funny things in it, and you're laughing, laughing, laughing all along the way until Act 4. And uh, I do offer Act 4 as one of the most sincerely uh, heartbreaking acts in all of drama, and many good actors do scene study from that act because um, it is a very frank and harsh look at the human heart and human actions. And yeah, the consequences of human actions as well. I mean, Act 4 is a, a, a really good look at if you spend three acts letting characters make choices and then you just took a two-year gap and see where those choices have landed them, the kind of pain that they've caused over a long period of time. And you see that Masha, for example, as you described, Masha's choice to marry the school teacher, knowing she doesn't love him, knowing that she loves Constantine, you know that's a bad idea when she says it or that she's going to do it earlier in the play. And in fact, uh, Trigorin, who she's sitting there at the table with, says more or less... That's not a good idea. 
which you know it's a bad idea, but Chekhov takes us two years in the future and shows you what that bad idea has wrought. You know it's a bad idea when Trigorin and Nina have this spark between them. At the end of Act 3, they've decided to meet again later at a hotel. And you know that's a bad idea. And Chekhov takes us two years in the future and shows us what happens due to that bad idea. Those are the key words, Jacob. He gently shows us that it's a bad idea. And you can say it explicitly on the stage, as Trigorin does, but to gently let it unfold and let the audience figure it out on their own has a deeper and more long-lasting impact on the human heart, in my opinion. I do also think that the doctor in The Seagull is a a healthful and wholesome character. He's a compassionate character. He cares for uh, the senior brother that owns the estate. Uh, he cares compassionately for women in childbirth, and he he cares emotionally for um, the people that that he serves, as well as their physical needs. Um, and such uh, such a good man. I'd like to know that guy better. Absolutely, yeah. He he's a, a very kind and uh, remarkably clear-headed character in a play that's so full of passions and uh, people who have a hard time controlling themselves. He's a very controlled character, and he has uh, just a short line that I, I'd be interested in your sense of how it applies to the broader play. When Masha comes to the doctor at the end of Act One and says uh, she admits that this thing that she's been holding that we all know, but she's finally allowed herself to admit to someone, I'm in love with Constantine, this person who can never love me back, the doctor's response is to say, oh, that bewitching lake. Oh, that bewitching lake. Later in the play, Irina, looking back on uh, many summers spent at the lake, she says, I remember the laughter, the noise, the shooting, and the love affairs. Always love affairs. I mean, she could be describing this play. There's lots of laughter, noise, there's shooting, and there's many love affairs. I wonder, what's your sense? We talked at the very beginning of this conversation about the Eden that they are in. What's your sense of how the Eden that they are in is is related to the trauma that they experience. Our playwright has a chance to l remind us gently that we are placed in this most beautiful, spacious planet and that our own suffering, running after those that we love, and if that particular love affair doesn't work out cruelly, taking our revenge upon ourselves or upon others, that that opportunity, sense of growth, suffering and futility that does exist in life, those things are present. And the doctor says that is present. And the doctor also says death is a part of our life. And and with the implication, we should not be afraid that death is there for us because that is a part of the natural cycle. Uh, it's one of his very light and great wisdoms. And uh, I, I always appreciate that the lightness of love 
and a little conflict and more, but love always being on the other side is, is always held out within this beautiful setting. We should not be surprised that Constantine tries again to take his life. He tells us that he will in Act Two. And I, if I could have a conversation with Anton Chekhov, I'd love to serve him tea by my fireplace and listen to something he'd like to read or read to him a funny story. Boy, I'd ask him why on earth he dared to call <laughs> the seagull a comedy. That's I agree. It's and famously Stanislavski's production really felt itself go away from that picture of the seagull as a comedy and really invested itself in the heartbreak and some of that beautiful dramatic subtext that is in what Chekhov, at least at the beginning of writing the story, thought was a comedy. And that production is what turned Chekhov back onto writing plays. And out of that, we got Uncle Vanya and the Three Sisters in the Cherry Orchard. So uh, thanks be to Stanislavski for saving that man's playwriting career. As we're nearing the final few few minutes here of our conversation, Dr. Pat, I'd love I have one that I'd like to share, uh, and I'd love for you to share what's one especially striking image. Chekhov is is so good at these psychological subtext of his plays, but he is also a brilliant user of imagery in the course of his plays. The one that I would like to share is this the physical stage that is built by Constantine in Act One out on the lawn with these uh, curtains that hang and uh, there's not there's there's not much of a backdrop there's not much elements of the stage and he's very proud of that it's part of his new forms that he's hoping for from the theater but in act four we learn in what is i don't know exactly how what why it touches me so but we learn from some of the other characters not Constantine himself but some of the other characters I think it's Medvedenko and Masha talking about it that the stage has been left up all this time and it's truthfully been destroyed by sitting out in the elements for season after season. The curtains hang damply. It's now sort of a spooky uh, place to be. In fact, Medvedenko says he, he actually, as he was walking by it one night, thought he heard a woman screaming and crying. From in I mean, it's become this haunting, lasting thing that really should have been taken down a long time ago, but has instead stayed and sort of rotted on the lawn of this estate. That is, I think, a, a really powerful image from the seagull that I'll remember, of course, besides the seagull itself, uh, which is an incredible image. Do you have an image, something visual, perhaps, that you'll remember from the play, Dr. Pat? Uh, I must say, um, you you yourself uh, took my... <laughs> my, my, my that, no, that is an image. That is an image. And that image of both a beautiful stage with glistening, glinting water just as the sun has set, where the anticipation, excitement, and adrenaline that everyone feels, both in front of the curtain and behind the curtain, everyone feels that anticipation of when the show is about to start. And then just as you described, uh, the skeleton of the stage that has been worn down, just as the soul of Nina has worn down. And another just ordinary workaday character say, I thought I heard a woman crying by that. And then we hear her say, 
we hear her tell the playwright, I go by that stage all the time, but never had the courage uh, to come up here. Um, I guess a moment that if I, I would put that stage on the play's poster if we were going to leave an image in the artist's mind, in, in the audience's mind, but I would also leave um, with the audience the ironic image of a very beautiful young actress. She's uh, a, a gorgeous young actress in every way. This is Nina, and she is looking up at a very handsome young writer, that's Trigorin, and he's returning to the house where his real girlfriend is calling him, come back to the house, come back to the house, and he's leaving a conversation, although he looks back at Nina, and we know that he is falling in love with her, and she is absolutely the picture of youth and innocence and hope for someone with integrity at that moment in her life that is going to share the best of herself with audiences in the future. And she watches him go uh, to the other actress in the house and she comes down stage, reflects a moment and says, a dream. And that is the end and curtain of act two. And that dangerous, delicious, heartfelt moment of knowing that her dreams and her life is just in a transition moment there, um, that youth and hope and what might happen next is a very good image in this play. Chekhov did love actresses, and he had a beautiful mistress as one. Um, so I... I know that he wrote for women so beautifully on the stage. He did. And, and and Trigorin in this play is sort of known as one of his great male roles in the course of his scripts. And he, he truly is a great role. He has so many wonderful monologues. But as with the bulk of Chekhov's work, that's true for all the characters in this show. I mean, it'd be a blast just to be a member of the ensemble of a show like this, no matter what role you were playing, because the wellspring of deep psychological reality that Chekhov has invested in all of the characters is, is very unmatched in much dramatic literature. Well, I want to say a big thank you to you, Dr. Pat. Thank you for being willing to talk today about The Seagull by Anton Chekhov. It is a blast to come to Chekhov, and it's so great to have you on this show. You're very welcome. Let's do it again and talk about another Chekhov play or any other play you want to talk about. We will definitely do that. Um, if you are out there and you want to connect with us, if you've seen The Seagull, if you've seen that great 2018 film, if you've just read it, as so much of Chekhov's work is is really delightful to read as well as it is to see, if you've done it, that would be great too. However you've embraced Chekhov or The Seagull, if you want to connect with us, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The handles are No Script Podcast or if you just want to email us about it, and a message, a conversation that you want to have, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love for you to recommend the podcast to your friends and relatives, people that you know that love scripts, that love the theater. They can find us at Podbean, at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. But the easiest way, if you have a Facebook, is just to connect with us on Facebook. And every Monday when a new episode comes out, we post a link to where you can find that new episode just by clicking once. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Dr. Pat. And we will see you next time on No Script, the podcast.